Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for September 26th through October 2nd, 2022. This is covering Isaiah chapters 50 through 57. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Hooray! So excited to see you, Scriptures. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 23 minutes, 9 seconds. Wow, so short. What would it be daily? 3 minutes, 18 seconds. Oh my goodness. Let's take extra time this week to check our footnotes, to dig into our resources. Here we've got time codes if you want to take it chapter by chapter, or buckle up and we'll talk about it all together. Now, do you remember in the movie Toy Story 2, when Woody was having a crisis of identity, eventually he remembered who he was and where his loyalties were by the name written on his boot. So who do we belong to? Paul gives us a great answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When we sin, We may not feel God wants us anymore. That's not true. Look for what God has to say about it as we begin in Isaiah chapter 50. Let's start in verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities ye have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. When we turn away from the Lord, we are the ones selling ourselves. Don't put that on the Lord. Going on in verse 2. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinketh, because there is no water, and dieth for thirst. Do you see this image? Yes, he has power to redeem us. And look what he is willing to do for us. Going on in verse 4. The Lord hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore... Have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. What a faithful declaration. Do you notice some of the imagery in there that is messianic or that's describing the mission of Jesus Christ, giving his back to the smiters? And in verse 7, 
What a great declaration for the Lord will help me. Isaiah knows, he wants us to know that God has the power to redeem, but not just that, that he's willing to redeem. We're the ones that sell ourselves. God is never going to sell us. He's bought us with such a precious price. Let's take a look in Isaiah chapter 51, starting in verse 1. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. Notice here again the imagery in these verses, how the Lord was calling on the people of Israel to remember and to keep the covenants that he had established with Abraham and Sarah. Notice that language in verse 2. Look unto Abraham your father, unto Sarah that bare you. You are the covenantal descendants of the promises made with Abraham and Sarah. As we do that, as we remember that, let's take a look in verse 3. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Now in the next few verses, verses 4 through 6, the Lord taught Israel that they can have comfort in him when they are faithful to their covenants because his redemptive power and righteousness are eternal. Let's take a look at verse 7. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. So if the Lord's law is in our hearts, then we have no need to fear the mockery of others. Remember that the blessings of the Lord's righteousness and salvation will endure forever, while those who revile against righteousness will no longer be able to hurt us in the next life. And that's a comfort. Let's keep going in verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransomed to pass over? Now, in verses 11 through 23, the Lord indicated who it was that needed to awake. Yep, it's his people, us. Now, looking back on verses 9 and 10, I don't know if it felt confusing at all to you, those verses, but remember that when you see a phrase such as, Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Like it says in verse 9, if you don't know the specific reference, can you determine the intent by the context? God has done great things. Like he goes on to say in verse 10, Specifically, the Lord is referencing the conquering of Egypt in the days of Moses. Footnote B for verse 9 helps us with that by referencing Psalm 74, 13. It says, Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. So Rahab is Egypt. As various Bible commentaries state, 
the monster or dragon wounded by the Lord. But again, if you don't get a specific reference, just look for the intent of the reference in the verses, and you'll probably be right on track. That's right. That's the important thing. One more side note. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. These two things are come unto thee. Who shall be sorry for thee? Desolation and destruction and famine and the sword, by whom shall I comfort thee? Thy sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets as a wild bull in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. Now, when Nephi quotes this chapter in 2 Nephi chapter 8, these verses read a little differently. Let's take a look at 2 Nephi chapter 8 verse 19. These two sons are come unto thee. We said things before. Who shall be sorry for thee? It's not a question. They are sorry for them. Thy desolation and destruction and the famine and the sword, and by whom shall I comfort thee? Thy sons have fainted, save these two. They lie at the head of all the streets as a wild bull in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. Remember that Nephi's copy of Isaiah would have been several centuries more current than what the King James translators had to work with. In fact, more current than any modern translation has had to work with. The Institute Manual gives us this insight. The text of 2 Nephi chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, taken from the brass plates, suggests that the two sons may be the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, who will keep the armies from defeating the Jews. See also Doctrine and Covenants, section 77, verse 15. By means of these two servants of God and the miracles they work, God will remove from Israel's hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. The promise is, thou shalt no more drink it again. Instead, the cup of fury shall be given to those who have trampled on and walked over the covenant people of the Lord. It will then be their turn to know suffering. That's a great clarification. I love the Book of Mormon. Me too. Let's continue on with Isaiah 52, starting in verse 1. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So how shall we awake? I mean, we've been getting a lot of that to be awake But how? We shall be awake by putting on our strength and beautiful garments. And what does that mean? Footnote 1D takes us to a verse from last year's studies. Elias Higby also wanted to know what this meant. Here is what the prophet told him in Doctrine and Covenants 113 verse 8. He had reference to those whom God should call in the last days, who should hold the power of priesthood, to bring again Zion and the redemption of Israel. And to put on her strength is to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she, Zion, has a right to by lineage, also to return to that power which she had lost. So to put on thy beautiful garments means that they should clothe themselves with inner purity and sanctity 
It means to figuratively remove the clothes of their captivity to sin and instead wear clothes of righteousness and priesthood authority. And what about the instruction to arise and sit down? <laughs> Do you want us to arise or to sit down? Which yeah, is it? Good question. There's some meaning lost in English. Take a look at footnote 2b. Arise from the dust and sit down in dignity, being redeemed at last. So that makes a little more sense. It does. And I've always liked that image of arising from the dust. Lehi taught that to his sons, to arise from the dust and be men. Something about elevating yourself from that low station that you're in. Right. Going on in verse 3. For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. The seminary manual adds this insight. Although we are not redeemed from sin through money, the process of returning to the Lord does have a price. We must be willing to offer him a broken heart and a contrite spirit and put forth great effort to repent. Excellent. I find it interesting in that verse, the price that we sold ourselves for. <laughs> not. Nothing. That's not good. I wish that we could do better at seeing ourselves the way our Savior sees us. It's interesting to note that Jesus Christ knows everything that's wrong with us. He knows all of our faults that no one else knows. And yet, he finds in us great worth, divine worth. We should trust his judgment of our potential and our worth. So going on, anciently, during times of war, people would anxiously await news from the battlefield. This news would have been brought by runners traveling on foot. Is the battle going well or not? Look at the description of the messengers of the Lord in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye, when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Has your life ever been touched by messengers bringing this sort of message? Elder Jeffrey R. Holland had this to say in the October 1996 General Conference. He says, quote, as the Book of Mormon prophet Abinadi made clear in a slight variation of Isaiah's exclamation, Oh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that is the founder of peace, yea, even the Lord, who has redeemed his people, yea, him who has granted salvation unto his people. Ultimately, it is Christ who is beautiful upon the mountain, and it is his merciful promise of peace in this world, his good tidings of eternal life in the world to come, that make us fall at his feet and call his name blessed and give thanks for the restoration of his true and living church. Close quote. Nice. Now, I know we've been bringing up Handel's Messiah a lot lately, but there's a good reason. It's pretty awesome. Hear, hear. And it may enhance your study to hear a composer set some of these verses to music. Here's another example in Movement 38, How Beautiful Are the Feet. We'll include a link in the description if you want to hear the whole thing. Wonderful. Going on in verse 9, 
Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now remember what we've been learning so far, how God's people have been asleep, and how they need to rise up and share the good news of the gospel. The Institute Manual gives us some further insight on these verses. It quotes a segment from Monty S. Nyman's book, Great Are the Words of Isaiah. He says, quote, These verses are quoted four times in the Book of Mormon, and always as a unit, although the Savior once interpolated a comment between verses 8 and 9 when he quoted them. Although verse 8 speaks about Zion, while verse 9 speaks about Jerusalem, the Savior quoted all three verses twice to the Nephites and said they would be fulfilled through both the Nephites and the Jews. This again shows the dual nature of Isaiah's prophecies. The Savior first quoted this passage following his declaration that the land of America was to be given to Lehi's descendants after the Gentiles reject the fullness of the gospel and are trodden underfoot by the house of Israel. He said this would fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. He later quoted the passage while instructing the Nephites concerning the restoration of the Jews. He changed the wording from thy watchman to their watchman, as he was referring to Jerusalem's watchman in this case rather than those of Zion. Abinadi also recognized the universal application of this passage in teaching that the salvation of the Lord shall be declared to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and quoting these three verses as evidence. Joseph Smith designated Jackson County, Missouri as the Zion spoken of in verse 8. The watchmen are those who preach the gospel as indicated in verse 7. The song to be sung in Zion will be a new song, sung when all will know Christ during the millennium. The words of the song, which will include parts of verse 8, are recorded in Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verses 99 through 102, quote. And we talked about that last year when we talked about section 84. That is interesting. Well, let's keep going with the message of Isaiah in Isaiah 52, verse 11. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Notice that we had the declaration before to awake and arise from those things that are unclean. Now we have the depart, go out from wickedness. Same thing as rise from the dust and be clean. Going on in verse 12. For ye shall not go out with haste nor by flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rearward. Now the word rearward refers to the protection God will give to those who come to him. In other words, God has your back. Right. Let's take a look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. 
So who is this servant? Well, obviously it's Jesus Christ, isn't it? The Institute Manual gives us this insight. Isaiah 52, 13-15 is a dualistic prophecy. On the one hand, it refers to Jesus Christ. These verses belong with Isaiah 53 as introductory material for the greatest of the Old Testament messianic chapters. The Savior's visage was so marred more than any man when he suffered for the sins of mankind and was crucified on Calvary. Nails, metal spikes were driven into his hands and feet, and a spear pierced his side to ensure his death. On the other hand, the Savior himself made it clear that Isaiah 52.13 also had reference to a servant involved in the great and marvelous work of the Father in the latter days. See 3 Nephi 21 verse 9. The Book of Mormon verse undoubtedly refers to Joseph Smith and the Restoration. Men marred him, persecuting him throughout his life until they succeeded in killing him. Yet power was given him by the Father to bring forth unto the Gentiles the Book of Mormon, as well as other Latter-day Revelations. As a result, kings and rulers of the earth behold and consider things which had not been told them. Great insights. Let's continue then, as it said in the Institute Manual, with the great messianic chapters in chapter 53. Now, Isaiah 53 contains a prophecy of the atonement of Christ. Let's start in verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Moses described that they were delivered from bondage in Egypt by the Lord's mighty hand and stretched out arm in Deuteronomy 7, 18 and 19. And I think that's a great connection to this phrase right here. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The power of the Lord to deliver. Keep going in verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, I really like the descriptor that Jesus will grow up as a root out of a dry ground. One interpretation of the phrase dry ground is that it refers to the spiritual drought or in Jesus' day which had resulted from the wickedness of Jewish leaders and their followers. The seminary manual adds this insight as well. President Joseph Fielding Smith explained what it means that Jesus had no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing about Jesus to cause people to single him out. In appearance, he was like men. And so it is expressed here by the prophet that he had no form or comeliness. That is, he was not so distinctive so different from others that people would recognize him as the Son of God. He appeared as a mortal man. Yeah, you might say, especially in this era of superhero movies, he wasn't like a superhero, Mm. just like us. Now, verse 3 might be a good place to start looking for descriptions of certain purposes of Christ's mission. Here's an activity that you might want to try, and I'll do it in the visuals, but think about marking these characteristics of Christ's ministry with a color coding. So for example, if we looked for things that described his suffering, his assumption of burdens or debts, his death, and his reward, you could mark a color for each of those. Red for suffering, I've got a dark green here for the assumption of burdens, death, I'll just highlight with a gray, and then blue for reward. 
it might be interesting to see those patterns or those characteristics as we look ahead in these verses. So let's go on in verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Elder David A. Bednar, in the April 2014 General Conference, offered this insight. He said, quote, There is no physical pain, no spiritual wound, no anguish of soul or heartache, no infirmity or weakness you or I ever confront in mortality that the Savior did not experience first. In a moment of weakness, we may cry out, No one knows what it is like. No one understands. But the Son of God perfectly knows and understands, for he has felt and borne our individual burdens. And because of his infinite and eternal sacrifice, he has perfect empathy and can extend to us his arm of mercy. He can reach out, touch, succor, heal, and strengthen us. Close quote. Nice. Let's go on in verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the October 2001 General Conference, James E. Faust said, quote, He suffered so much pain, indescribable anguish, and overpowering torture for our sake. His profound suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane caused him to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit. No one has ever suffered in any degree what he did. End quote. That's so important to remember. And to remember that he did it for you, for me. If you haven't ever inserted your name to personalize verses of Scripture, this is a good set of verses to do that with. Let's go back over verses 5 and 6 and see what it sounds like when we personalize it. But he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him, and with his stripes I am healed. I, like a sheep, have gone astray. I have turned to my own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of me. How does that change when we make the atonement personal? Now, Handel recognized the power of these verses, too. Verses 3 through 6 were all set to music for Messiah. These are movements 23 through 26. We'll include links in the description if you want to hear them. Now, not to go full music nerd on you guys, but if you take the time to listen to these, pay close attention to the last one. All we like sheep have gone astray. Listen to the choir sing the word astray. The melody goes in some strange erratic direction, and it's different each time. Who knows where it will end up? And it gets quieter and quieter as it goes, as if the singer is wandering away somewhere far away. It's a brilliant example of creating an image with music. It's great stuff. You know, I've always liked that movement 
but I never noticed that feature. I look forward to uh, listening to that again and paying attention to that. Please do. Let's continue on in this incredible chapter in verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You know, as much as the descriptions are so powerful in these verses about what the Savior has done, I really was impressed in verse 11, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. What knowledge are we talking about? Does it mean experience? Like we read just a little bit ago in Elder Bednar's quote, when he talked about how he can succor and care for us because of all he's been through. Maybe that's the knowledge that he's talking about in verse 11. Kind of a cool idea. Hmm. And let's take a look at the phrase in verse 10. Did it really please the Lord to bruise him? The Institute Manual gives us this great quote from Elder Melvin J. Ballard. This comes from a collection of Sermons and Missionary Services of Melvin Joseph Ballard by Bryant S. Hinckley. He says, quote, In that hour, I think I can see our dear Father behind the veil, looking upon these dying struggles until even he could not endure it any longer. And, like the mother who bids farewell to her dying child, has to be taken out of the room so as not to look upon the last struggles, so he bowed his head and hid in some part of his universe, his great heart almost breaking for the love that he had for his son. Oh, in that moment when he might have saved his son, I thank him and praise him that he did not fail us. For he had not only the love of his son in mind, but he also had love for us. I rejoice that he did not interfere and that his love for us made it possible for him to endure, to look upon the sufferings of his son and give him finally to us, our Savior and our Redeemer. Without him, without his sacrifice, we would have remained and we would never have come glorified into his presence. And so this is what it cost, in part, for our Father in heaven to give the gift of his Son unto men. End quote. There's a great alternate translation in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. Often bruise and crush, the same kind of word is used. And it reminds me of the imagery of the olive press and the kind of symbolism that that brings to us as we think about the Savior, his suffering, and the blessings that come from it. Now, regarding the phrases in 8 and 10, Abinadi taught in the Book of Mormon, this is Mosiah 15, verses 10 through 11, And now I say unto you, 
who shall declare his generation? Behold, I say unto you, that when his soul has been made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Now, this is a summary of what was taught in those two verses we just read. Going on. And now what say ye? And who shall be his seed? Behold, I say unto you, that whosoever has heard the words of the prophets, yea, all the holy prophets, who have prophesied concerning the coming of the Lord, I say unto you, that all those who have hearkened unto their words, and believed that the Lord would redeem his people, and have looked forward to that day for a remission of their sins, I say unto you, that these are his seed, or they are the heirs of the kingdom of God. So that interpretation might help even bring more depth into the verses as you read them. That's such a great chapter. But let's go on to Isaiah chapter 54. Now before we start this chapter, keep in mind that Jesus Christ himself quoted this chapter to the Nephites as recorded in 3 Nephi chapter 22. In fact, it was after this quote that he commanded us to search these things diligently, for great are the words of Isaiah. Let's see if we can understand why he chose this particular chapter to quote. In the first three verses, the Lord spoke of the growth of the house of Israel that would occur in the last days after being gathered from its scattered condition. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman, forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth. When thou wast refused, saith thy God. Notice the terms, the shame of thy youth, the reproach of thy widowhood, like we see in verse 4. They describe Israel's condition of separation from her close covenant relationship with the Lord. Let's go on in verse 7. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. As Elder Jeffrey R. Holland reminds us in the April 2012 General Conference, quote, Surely the thing God enjoys most about being God is the thrill of being merciful, especially to those who don't expect it and often feel they don't deserve it, end quote. Great that reminds me of a special Hebrew word that we learned back when we were studying the book of Ruth, chesed. Remember that it means a benevolence beyond what is expected. Nice. Now, in the last verses of the chapter, the Lord spoke of additional blessings the Israelites would receive when they are gathered back to him. 
He continues that list of blessings in chapter 55. Let's start in verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Now, I think we should take great comfort in the end of verse 2. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Hooray! We need to behave ourselves physically, but when it comes to spiritual things, you can have as much as you want. Spiritual fatness. Now, verses 4 and 5, Isaiah discusses that after being gathered, the Lord's covenant people will lead others and nations will come to them because the Lord has glorified them. Let's pick it up again in verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If we want these blessings and the Lord's divine mercy, then we must act. We must return to the Lord and he will offer abundant pardon. As Elder Neil L. Anderson reminds us in the October 2009 General Conference, quote, When we sin, we turn away from God. When we repent, we turn back toward God. The invitation to repent is rarely a voice of chastisement, but rather a loving appeal to turn around and to return toward God, end quote. How would things be different if we could really understand that? What a great insight on returning toward God. Well, let's go on to verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, just like in Revenge of the Sith, when Obi-Wan Kenobi says, It's over, Anakin. I have the high ground. (laughs) The Lord always has the high ground. His ways are higher than our ways. Well, that's one way to think of it. Now, all joking aside, this is one of the most important perspectives in all the scriptures. Memorize this. Write this in the fleshy tables of your heart. His thoughts and his ways are higher meaning more intelligent, wiser, and better than your thoughts and your ways, and mine too. You know, Isaiah seems to be emphasizing this point all throughout his writings. Maybe it's really important for us to understand who we trust. Do we trust the Lord? And if so, then can we trust even when we don't understand? So how have you seen that to be true in your life? How might this truth that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts, how might this help you in a challenge that you're currently facing or maybe someone you love is facing? Good thing to think about as you read these verses. 
Now, verses 10 through 13, the Lord assured his people that his words would be fulfilled. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 56. Now, in the first eight verses, the Lord promised that he would also gather and bless individuals who were not members of the house of Israel, but who would love and serve the Lord and take hold of his covenant. Continuing on from verse 9 into Isaiah 57, we learn that the Lord spoke against the wickedness of the people. He also taught about the blessings the righteous would receive. For example, let's take a look in Isaiah 57, starting in verse 13. When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee. But the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land, and shall inherit my holy mountain, and shall say, Cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. How is that for a reward? How is that for the promise of following the Holy One of Israel? He strengthens us. He lifts stumbling blocks from our way or gives us power to overcome them. He inhabits eternity and he wants us with him. He is so merciful that he strives to revive our spirit and revive our heart. Could we use that in the challenges we face today? Then we must turn to the Savior. And lastly, the Lord gives a final condemning warning in verse 21. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. So let's be the humble and contrite ones rather than the ones who have no peace, shall we? Boy, I think that's a good, <laughs> that's a good alternative. Yes, let's do that. How wonderful is our God. May we not only stay true to our covenants and pray for the strength to do so, but share this gospel and gather Israel. What an amazing lesson. We're learning so much about the words of Isaiah. It's such a great time to be looking for gems, to study, to share with others. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans. <laughs>